Well, good morning again, GBC. Uh, if this is not the second time you're seeing me, you should go back and watch the announcement video because I did that and there's some really important announcements in there that you need to know. So, um, but it's great to be with you in this format right now. And if you could open a Bible to Luke chapter four, uh, we are studying verses 14 uh, through 30 today. So I'm gonna read this in its entirety and then I'm gonna pray for us at this time. It says in verse 14 of chapter four, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues being glorified by God. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given him. He unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. And in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, where the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet of Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. God, in this moment, we do ask, Holy Spirit, that you uh, would just apply your word to our hearts in a way, Lord, that could only be noticed by you, uh, in a way that we could only point to and say, God, you did that. Uh, Lord, would you bring about conviction, encouragement, comfort, uh, change, Lord, in our lives, that we would be people who are being transformed more and more to your image, Lord Jesus, and glorifying you in this world. That's our, that's our heart. That's our prayer. We pray in this time. In Christ's name, amen. I wonder this morning, I wonder if you want to be free. Like, do you want to be free? Now, I bet when I just asked that, if I could force you to answer out loud that question, every single person who's with you watching this right now, you yourself, you would say, yes, I want to be free. Unless you have just someone who's really sarcastic and in a mood or whatever, and they're just joking around or something. Because really, at the end of the day, all of us know we need to be more free than we are, and we long to be free. We long to be free. Uh, so if you want to be free, 
I wonder though, what do you want to be free from? What is it that you want to be free from? Uh, if you wonder what it is, you're like, well, I don't know, what should I be free from? I bet you if you just thought about whatever it is that you think your greatest problem is in life right now, I bet you the freedom that you long for is centered around that issue and that problem. Would, I just wonder, would you say right now in your life that you wish you could be free from your job? Maybe it's a job that you just it's too wearing you out, it's, it's not what you want to be doing. Whatever it is, you want to be free from your job. Uh, would, do you, would you actually say, unless they're sitting next to you, I want to be free from my parents, right? I'd love to be free from my parents. This quarantine thing is just it's going too far, right? Do you want to be free from the place that you're living in? And maybe it is Gresham itself. Maybe it is our country. Maybe, it, maybe it's the neighborhood, the house that you live in. Do you want to be free from a toxic relationship? Is that what you want to be free from? Do you want to be free from the coronavirus, right? Obviously, all of us would say yes to that. Maybe freedom from a debt that you owe, maybe that you know is coming due, and you don't know how you're going to pay it. Or maybe if we were really honest, and you could confide in somebody this morning without the word getting out, you would actually say something like, I wish I could be free from my marriage. Do you wish you could be free from a certain political group right now? In our country, or maybe an emotional oppression that you're under, like depression or anxiety or grief. I mean, just, just what is it that you want to be free from? I mean, really, just think about whatever that is, try to identify it, and if you can identify it, ask yourself this question Would being free from that finally and ultimately make me free? If you could be free from that, would you finally be free? Do you really think you'd be free? See, our longing for freedom is one of the deepest desires that we have as humans. Uh, just, just think about it. It's actually the desire behind most ideologies and, and governing things that govern our lives, um, things that are often just a part of this fallen world. So just think about this for a second with me. It's the desire for freedom that's actually behind things like terrorism and revolution because they offer liberation from political oppression and powerlessness. It's behind socialism and capitalism. Both of these government systems sort of offer economic liberation to the poor. They just go about it very different ways, right? It's behind modern psychology, isn't it? Which offers the liberation of, of wholeness from, from our neurosis. It's, it's behind feminism, right? Which, which offers liberation from the domination of, of male patriarchy. It's behind the sexual revolution that has sought to offer liberation from sexual repression. It's behind postmodernism. Do you think about that? That offers liberation from the very idea of truth so that we can be free in ourselves to reinvent ourselves and our reality in the way that we want it to be. Right? The desire of liberation and freedom is one of the deepest human desires, and it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve wanted to be liberated from God. And in turn, sin entered the world, and then it's our sin fundamentally that has been our greatest oppressor ever since. Guys, it's in these verses here in Luke that God is showing us how Jesus' ministry began, and it begins with Him teaching. It begins with Him. He has a message. He has a message, and it's a message of liberation. So here's the two things I want us to ask this morning. What is Jesus' message? 
We see that in verse 14 all the way down through the beginning part of verse 22. And then from the second part of verse 22 all the way to the end, I want to ask the question, why is everyone so angry? Like, why is everyone so enraged? If you're like me, you read this and you're going, what is going on? So let's look at this. Well, the first thing is, what is Jesus' message? Starting in verse 14 through 22, we see this. Um, this, is a, this is an introductory comment we have here in verses 14 to 15 that Jesus has been going around Galilee and he's teaching in synagogues and he's making his way back to Nazareth um, all along the way. So this is helpful for, for me. Hopefully it is for you. This should be a map here on the screen so you can see where Galilee is. It's this golden area just north of Samaria. Uh, it has about a dozen or so, these small little towns, things like places like Bethsaida and uh, Capernaum and um, just all these other places that I probably can't pronounce very well. But there's all these towns. Jesus is going through these towns and he's teaching in their synagogues. These aren't fancy places. They don't have much, but they all have a synagogue. So Jesus is going in there. He's teaching and it says he's being glorified by all, glorified by all. Now he makes his way down to Nazareth, which is his hometown. It's 10 miles directly west. It's off the beaten path. It's a really sleepy little town. It's about 1,500 people in population maybe, so about the size of Cannon Beach, but definitely not as cool as Cannon Beach. I don't know if people were vacationing in Nazareth anytime, you know, but um, this is just a really insignificant town. I mean, this is the infamous place as well that Philip, when someone said, come and see Jesus, you know, when he found out Jesus was from Nazareth, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? We read that story in the Gospel of John, okay? This is not a significant place, and Jesus returns here, and we must get ourselves into this aspect of the story because Luke wants us to. It's really important. Think about it. He's returning to the synagogue that he grew up going to. He's, he's in the synagogue that, as a child, he would go to synagogue probably every single week, and attend, filled with people that would know him, right? And we know what a synagogue service was like pretty well, actually. Uh, we know this in history, that people would gather, they would start with prayer, then they would sing a few songs, most likely out of the, the Psalms of the Old Testament. Then there'd be a recitation of a well-known passage out of the Old Testament, and then someone would come up front, and they would take a scroll, and they would read from the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. They would hand it back to the attendant, they would sit down, and then somebody, another attendant would grab another scroll from one of the prophets, and someone would come up, and they would take it, and they would read it, they would hand it back to the attendant, and then they would sit down to preach. So they would stand when they read the Word of God, and then when somebody preached, they would sit down. The preacher would, would sit down. So Jesus goes up, he's handed the Isaiah scroll, and look at what verse 17 says, he found the place where it is written. So he hands the scroll, he's looking for this place, right? This is not random. He's not like, oh, I guess it's Isaiah today. I'm, oh, let's just pick this verse. You know, like he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's looking for a specific spot. This is premeditated. Jesus knows what he needs to say on this day. And he reads from Isaiah the words that we see here in verses 18 and 19. Then he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back, he sits down. He's about to preach. And there's a hush of sorts that falls over the room. Look in verse 20, it says, all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were ready to hear what Jesus was about to say. And what is his sermon? It's not very long. It says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Every single one of those words are very important, you guys. He says, today, this scripture is fulfilled 
in your hearing. That's what he says. And it says they marvel at his gracious words, which means like his attractive way of speaking. Right? They're like, wow, you know, listen to this guy. Right? Why would they marvel? Well, think about it. Because these people were anticipating the coming of the kingdom of God, just like every other Israelite. Right? And, they're, and Jesus is standing up and he's saying that longing for that coming, it's now. Right? He's saying, I'm the person that Isaiah was talking about when he uttered this prophecy. I'm that person. He's saying to the people who are there, this, that I, this thing that I just read from Isaiah, it's my job description. This is my job description. I am him. He's not saying that the kingdom will come like the rest of his contemporaries. Jesus is saying, it, it, it is here. It's going to be established through my work. The time is now. Guys, think about this, okay? Think about this. As people have waited and they've heard these these passages from the prophets read every single week, here they are, and their hometown boy is standing up and he's saying that he's the one who was promised and he's come to fulfill this message. What's the message? Just keep in mind again that Luke, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So the message that Jesus is proclaiming here you're going to see it fleshed out really through the rest of the book of Luke. So press in here just for a second. What is Jesus doing? What is his message? Well, it's a proclamation of sorts, isn't it? Right? What is he coming to do? Well, it's a message of what? A message of release. It's a message of liberation, isn't it? Look in verses 18 and 19. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Just think back to chapter 3, verse 22. What did we see? Jesus baptized, the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove in bodily form is what Luke says, right? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Why? To proclaim good news to the poor. To, to proclaim liberty to the captives, which that's exile language. That's we've been conquered by a nation. I'm a captive person in war kind of idea here. Liberty to the captives, okay, I'm proclaiming that. And what else? A recovering of sight to the blind, right? To set at liberty those who are oppressed. Then in a summary statement of sorts, he says what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is Jesus' message. And it most certainly is a message because notice the primary ministry, it's proclamation, right? That, that word's used three different times in these two verses. And what's he proclaiming? Good news, right? Gospel. Right? He's proclaiming liberation. He's proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Right? He's proclaiming grace, right? favor. And these things are not separate things. They're all the same thing, actually. They're all speaking to the same exact idea. And it's summed up in that last sentence, the year of the Lord's favor. That's a reference to the year of Jubilee, which, honestly, I don't use that word very much. Okay, maybe you do, maybe you're much cooler than I am, okay? But I don't use the word jubilee much. So when I think of the word jubilee, I just envision like a really bad block party or for some reason I, I feel like daycares often name themselves jubilee. I don't know why, but um, this is the year of jubilee, okay? Which if you want to read more about what this is referencing, go look at Leviticus chapter 25 and you can dig into that, okay? But the year of jubilee was really significant because every 50 years... The Israelites, right? Uh, when that time arrived, everyone's debts were forgiven. Slaves, prisoners, they were set free. Property was returned. 
right? It was, it was kind of like the great equalizer, right? But really the emphasis on that all debts are forgiven. This is a, a year of release from oppression. That's what the year of Jubilee was. It's a year of liberation, of freedom. Guys, guys Jesus' job description is to come and liberate people. So the really important question then is who? It's the poor, right? It's the imprisoned, it's the blind, it's the oppressed. Is that you? Is that you? See, it's critical to understand that Jesus isn't just here to to be a do-gooder, okay? Yes, he's going to do so much good, Right? He's going to do so much good. He's going to, he's going to uh, bring about transformation in people's physical lives. Right? He's going to live justly. He's going to do that. And as people who believe the gospel, we know that we are called as an implication of the gospel to do the same. Okay? But he's not just a do-gooder here. He's not here just to kind of save people in the temporary. Not at all. Right? The, the states of the category of people mentioned here in these two verses aren't meant to merely be understood as physical. Okay? So in other words, you don't need to be materially poor to be liberated by Jesus, right? You don't need to be literally in prison or literally blind or literally oppressed in a, in a societal sort of way. These are all physical pictures of deeper realities that, that actually extend into the lives of each and every human heart, even mine and even yours. So this is what this is saying, literally then. He's come to proclaim good news to those who know they are spiritually bankrupt, right? He's come to proclaim freedom to those who know they are imprisoned by the penalty of their sin. He's come to give sight to those who can't see themselves or the world in the way that God sees it, right? He's come to lift the oppressive power of sin off our shoulders. He's come to cancel your insurmountable debt against God. It's the, it's the year of Jubilee, right? Just imagine this, like your greatest debts that, that you're like, I don't know how I'm going to pay that. Okay, maybe it's, maybe it's your school debt. Maybe it's your mortgage. Maybe if you don't have any hand in finances right now, you're like, maybe it's a relationship. Maybe that's your greatest debt. You've hurt somebody. You've wronged someone. You long for them to forgive you, to pay that, that debt, right? But they, you, they won't do it. So you're like, man, if, that, if I could just be restored in relationship to that person, right? But, but think about this for a second. Imagine having your debt wiped clean. I just imagine this. The burden of that stress just kind of lifted and the nature of that relationship then restored. I mean, have you ever had somebody do this to you? Have you ever had somebody do this to you? I think there's a YouTube channel. Um, I think it's called That Was Epic. Uh, I don't know if it's epic or not. You can, you can be the judge of that. Um, and I have not watched all the videos, so I, I, I'm not sitting here saying I recommend all these videos to you. But there's a few that I've seen where this guy named Juan... He goes around to people's doors and he knocks on their doors and he says things like, um, they answer the door and he says, how much do you owe per month on, you know, rent for this, for this house? Or how much is your mortgage? And the people naturally, so like all of us, we're always skeptical when anybody knocks on our door in general that we don't know. But especially when you lead with a question like that, you know, they're a little put off. They're a little like trying to get out of it. But eventually, like he, he warms them up and they'll answer the question. So let's just say that someone says, I owe $1,300 a month on this place. He immediately grabs the cash out of his pocket and he counts it and he just hands it to him. And every time their response is just astonishment. They're, they're saying, why would you do this? Why would you do this? 
And one interaction in particular was just really pronounced to me as one guy answers the door, he says, I owe whatever, $1,200 a month, something like that. One hands him $1,200, and the guy just, his emotion was so palpable, you know, it was just so evident. Because he said, this morning I woke up and I know how I was going to pay my rent today. So I prayed, and I cried out to God, God, I need a miracle. He's like, and then you showed up at my door. And he goes, are you an angel? And one, I have no idea where this guy is at spiritually, he's just like, I don't think so, you know. But it was amazing just to see how this person paid that man's debt just for the month. And the response was just sheer joy. You could see the burden almost lift from his shoulders when that debt was paid, right? Could you imagine if he did that for an entire house mortgage? Could you imagine if Juan showed up and did that at your house today in that same way, right? This is what Jesus is doing here. He's showing up and he's saying to you, are you poor? He's saying to you, are you in chains? Are you oppressed? Are you able to see? Right? The, the poor, we know this, they don't live under any delusion that, that they are good and that they don't need help. Right? The blind aren't under a delusion that they can't see. The incarcerated live under no delusion right, that they are home. The oppressed aren't under the delusion that they are free, are they? Right? They know, all these people know, I am in need. Right? If you don't think you need Jesus, you guys, then Him showing up at your house and saying a message of liberation, it might sound like gracious words to you, but nothing more, will it? It's like if, if, if you've been guzzling the water of pride and self-sufficiency all your life, and then someone shows up at your door and offers you a glass of cold water, you'll probably just turn them away. Like, what are you doing here? But if you are weary and dry and dying, and someone knocks on your door and hands you a cold glass of water, you are going to guzzle it down and you will respond with joy. All right, this is the message of Jesus. He's the liberator. So why is everyone so upset about this? All right? This is the question that's raised in verses 22 through 30. And I'm not going to lie, this made me think of LeBron James when I read this part of the story, which, uh, fun fact, at the moment I'm preaching this sermon today, uh, on the day I'm preaching this sermon, was the day he was drafted, I guess, in 2003, the number one overall pick. And if you know anything about LeBron James, which many of you probably do not like sports at all, but if you probably know who LeBron James is at least. He grew up in the suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, and he was coming up and just heralded as the, the best basketball player since Michael Jordan, basically. And the Cleveland Cavaliers, NBA team, horrible history, terrible, not a great franchise, never done a lot. They realized when they got the first pick, we can draft like our hero, right? They saw LeBron James as their Messiah, right? They even called him the king. Here's the guy who's going to finally bring us a championship in Cleveland. They worshipped LeBron James in Cleveland. He's the hometown kid. He grew up there. But after seven years of failing and delivering that, he shunned them, he overlooked them, and he moved on to Miami. And you want to know what happened? Everybody who once worshipped LeBron James, they started burning his jerseys, ripping down his billboards all over the city, just cursing him and his family, all this kind of stuff. People went from worship of a person to sheer hatred and vitriol of somebody overnight. And in a similar way, that's kind of what we're seeing here happen, right? We read this next section and we read it, and naturally we have this question like, what just happened? How do you move from admiration earlier in the story to let's kill him, like really try to kill Jesus 
later on. Well, we'll notice this comment after the people marvel at Jesus at the end of verse 22. They say, what? Is not this Joseph's son? Right? Imagine just growing up in a small town where you know everybody. Right? Maybe you return home. Maybe you've done this before. Maybe you grew up in a church somewhere and you return home and people haven't seen you well. What are they going to say? They're going to say, well, I remember when you were this big. Or I remember when you did that. Or I remember changing your diapers. You know, that's always the worst one, right? But, you know, people say these things to you, right? And they remember, they've, they've frozen you in time. They remember you a certain way, okay? I wonder if people are hearing about Jesus teaching through, this, you know, the countryside. You know, he's starting to do certain things. His fame is, is rising, and they're hearing about this, and they're going, wow, isn't that Joseph's boy? Right? How could he be fulfilling this prophecy? We know this guy. Right? I remember him playing in the streets. I remember like changing his diapers or whatever it is, right? Now, Jesus here begins to emphasize this exact truth. Verse 24, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Right? This is something that Luke really wants us to know, and he makes a big point of this. Look in verse 16. He mentions the familiarity of Nazareth as Jesus' hometown there. Then we have their question about being Joseph's boy, which is another hometown. Tip of the hat in verse 22. Then in verse 24, Jesus says, Prophets aren't accepted in their hometown. And then he quotes this well-known proverb at the time, this is not in the Bible, in verse 23 that says, Physician, heal yourself. Which is a little confusing to us upon first reading. But essentially it's the idea that if I'm a physician, I'm here to heal, help other people heal. But I myself am sick. I mean, what's the, if I don't heal myself, then I'm going to die. That's, that's not going to be very good. And so the, the correlation here, though, isn't to Jesus healing himself. But physician, heal your, yourself in terms of your hometown, right? It's an equation to Nazareth, which is further developed when he quotes this idea that you're going to countlessly say to me as well, um, do the things we heard you do in Capernaum, which this is what, you guys? This is a comment of unbelief. Basically, they've heard other things that Jesus has done, and they're skeptical. Again, imagine them hearing of those things saying, isn't that Joseph's son? So, but still, there's no conflict here. There's nothing that should make them want to kill Jesus. And then we have these two stories, one from 1 Kings chapter 17, which we looked at in the spring, and one from 2 Kings chapter 5. Both center around two other prophets, right? Elijah and Elisha. And in the first story Jesus talks about, we see Elijah. He's sent, right? Which is a divine passive, meaning he didn't choose to do this, but God sent Elijah not to Israel, where there was plenty of widows that were in need, but he, set, he passed over that and sent him to Zarephath, which was where, do you, I don't know if you remember this, do you remember this, where Zarephath? It was the central place of Baal worship. It was where Jezebel, you know, lovely, horrible Jezebel, right? And King Ahab reigned, right? This was, this was enemy territory, like at the epicenter, essentially. And he sends Elijah to visit a widow there and to help her. And all of you remember what she said. When he shows up, the widow says, I'm about to make my last meal, and then me and my son are going to die. This lady's at the end of her rope. And then the second story we see here is that he rem reminds us of the story of Elisha and how he is not sent, again, that divine passive, he's not sent by God to all the lepers that are in Israel, which we'll get into leprosy later, but leprosy is a horrible disease. Skin falls off. You can't touch anybody with leprosy. You'd probably get it. And so lepers lived in isolation, just suffered alone. 
I was horrible. And so here Elisha is not sent to all the lepers that are in Israel to heal them, but he is sent where? God sends him to, to pass over Israel and to go to another place than Naaman the Syrian, which for us, we're like, that doesn't mean much. But Syria, you guys, had just raided and conquered Israel, and Naaman was actually a commander of the army, to top it off, right? God healed him. So you notice this, Jesus' hometown, verse 16, and then Luke's like, remember, this is Jesus' hometown, verse 22. Then Jesus is like, remember, this is my hometown, verse 24. They're like, you're going to say, heal yourself, heal your hometown, verse 23. Response, Jesus says, do you remember when God passed over his hometown and sent people to the Gentiles? But not just the Gentiles, but to like the enemy Gentiles ultimately. Right? Do you remember that? That this is what this is what he's saying. Not only outside of Israel, but amongst your greatest enemies. Syria, Zarephath. And this is said all in the context of what? Jesus saying, He's here. He's come. He's the one to liberate, to announce the year of Jubilee. And this emphasis again is signaling what? It's not just for Israel. Their response to these two stories that Jesus uses here to illustrate verses 18 and 19, what does this mean? I mean, and how is it that people all speak well of him in verse 22? And that turns into verse 28 where they, all these same people were filled with wrath and rose up and drove him out. How's this happening? Where, where are they doing this? Where are they driving him? Out of the town. You see that? They, they, they tried to end his life. In all of this, we have this commentary here, really, of the third temptation that we saw last week of the devil and Jesus, right, where, Jesus, where the devil says, hey, just throw yourself down, you'll be saved. Right? The people tried to put Jesus into the same position that Satan had suggested he put himself into, and he still did not let them. But Jesus very easily is said to pass through their midst, and he went away, never to our knowledge to ever return again to his hometown. They, they drove him out of town, but not just Joseph's boy, they drove the Messiah out of town, the liberator. They liked the message, but not the messenger. Why? Well, guys, these stories that Jesus uses here are emphasizing two really strong things. It compares, he's comparing their current era by telling them these stories. He's comparing their current era to one of the least spiritual periods of Israel's history. He's kind of comparing them by doing this But he's also suggesting that Gentiles who were intensely disliked by them were worthy just as much as they were of God's miraculous work in their lives and salvation. So they're angry here for two reasons, okay? The first is they were way more nationalistic than they had realized. Or maybe they did realize and they didn't care. We don't know. But they were waiting for someone to come and return Israel to prominence, right? To the days of Solomon, the days of of David or something. They wanted a Messiah who would come and just make Israel great again, right? They, They cared too much about their nation than they did about all of humanity in the world, and they missed it. They missed it. They thought God only loved and cared about them primarily. This is nationalistic pride, and they needed their hearts to think way wider, right? That's part of their anger. But secondly, 
They had spiritual pride. Their, their hearts didn't need to just go wider. Their hearts needed to go lower. You could say it that way. They see their enemies as the Gentiles, and they in turn think that they are better, that they are more deserving of God's divine and saving activity than those people are. So for God to pass over them for someone else who's their enemy? I don't know if you've ever um, been passed over before, but um, I was thinking this week uh, about growing up in elementary school, we'd always play this amazing game called Heads Up, Seven Up, right? I don't know if you've ever played that game before. It's this ridiculous game where you put your head down on a desk, you put your thumb up, and then a few of your classmates go around the room and hit your thumb. If they hit your thumb, you put it down. They all return to the front of the room, and then you look up, and you your thumb was touched, you got to try to guess who touched your thumb. It's an amazing game, amazing game, okay? But essentially it was a way for like elementary kids to like flirt with people. So uh, I can vividly remember this time where this girl who I really liked, I was like, man, I hope she touches my thumb, you know? I hope she picks me. And she didn't. And lo and behold, I found out that she passed me over and she picked Gary. Okay, no joke, that was his name. Gary was my enemy, right? This, this person who I cared about passed me over for my greatest enemy, right? Second great enemy, okay? Right? Seriously though, imagine someone who you actually hated and the person you think you're in love with picks them instead of you, right? That, that's kind of the image here. Why then, or who then, who then do you hate? These Gentiles are hated because they warred against Israel, they defeated them, dominated them, destroyed them, exiled them. You haven't had that happen in your life, but nonetheless, who do you hate? Can you think of a person? Can you think of a group of people? I bet you feel better than those people, don't you? I know I do. You might say, well, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I mean, look at these, look at that person. I often think of it like uh, with, with terms of like my yard, because there's times where my yard's not immaculate, but it's, it's okay. But if I compare my yard to my neighbor's yard and they're like, yard is immaculate, it makes me feel like my yard is, is not up to standards. And so I feel pressure I need to keep up. But in those same moments, I can look across the street to my other neighbor's yard and it looks like they haven't kept up on it for a few months. So if I'm looking at their house, I'm like, whoa, my yard's not that bad. And so I feel way better about my yard. So it really just depends on which direction I'm looking, though, and I'm just comparing myself to my neighbors, right? I feel, I feel like I'm good. I go, well, at least I'm not them. At least I'm not that. Right? These people here, they're angry because of their pride. They're angry because of their pride. They needed to think wider. They needed to think lower. And humility, guys, that'll make you go wide and low. It'll make you go wide and low. And pride, if I could say it this way, will make you grow tight and high. Right? That's what it'll do. They liked the message, but not the messenger. But in failing to receive the messenger, they miss the message. They miss the message. And how often do we like the message and not the messenger? We like some of the ideas of what we're hearing from the Bible, from God's lips, right? But to receive God himself? How much do we, do we really like the kingdom without the king, right? Why is this so tied together? Well, it's because Jesus, he is both the, the messenger here and the liberator. And the way that he liberates is by actually taking on your oppression. You can't, therefore, experience his liberation unless you receive him. I mean, just consider uh, 
how this works. I mean, you and I, we've already established, we are oppressed by our sin. And so Jesus didn't just proclaim a gospel saying, go free. Right? He didn't do that. No, he entered into our lives and he took on that yoke of oppression of our sin so that he could break that oppression and we could go free and take on his light yoke that he offers us. Right? This is what we looked at this spring we, when we read Isaiah, right? We preached through this where it says what in Isaiah 53? Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was taken away. Right, guys, these people here, they try to kill Jesus and he easily escapes. How is it the case? Because Jesus tells us later in John chapter 10 that no one can take his life from him. The only way that his life will be taken is if he lays, lays it down. That is the only way. He says, I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. Right, this is amazing. Because years later, a couple years later from this moment, Jesus would become poor and exiled. He would enter the prison of Sheol. He would welcome not just any oppression, but your oppression so that you could go free. Hebrews actually tells us Jesus suffered outside of the city, right? Not because he was driven out of the city by other people, because he willingly was going to lay down his life. He also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Guys, this is, this is our Savior. This is the Messiah. He has come. So who can receive Jesus? If, if people were fruit, who's ripe for the picking, right? I mean, you don't eat green bananas, do you? Why? Because they're disgusting, okay? But, but maybe even more truthful, you don't eat green bananas because they're not ready to eat yet. They're not ripe. So who's ripe? Who's ready to receive Jesus? Well, guys, it's, it's those who are at their very end. Right, it's, so if that's you, if you feel like that this morning, I have really good news for you today. If you feel like you're just barely holding on, right, if, you're, if you're about to boil over, if you have nothing left to give, if you have nowhere else to turn, if you feel lost and worthless and wonder if anybody else cares, if you are weak and weary and you need rest, if you keep failing and you're like, I don't know how I could ever achieve this victory, right? If you have zero, absolutely zero excuses left, you've stopped pointing the finger at your neighbor's yard, right? Jesus says, he comes, he knocks on your door, and he says, I'm here. How much do you owe? It's the year of Jubilee. All right, Jesus is the only one who can liberate you guys because he's the only one who can deal with your real problem. Nothing can take away the fundamental oppression you're under. Any liberation outside of this liberation will only lead to more oppression in your life. Right? And the liberating gospel itself has something to say to both the prideful and the humble today. Because if you're at the end of your rope, I love this quote from Jerry Bridges. If you're at the end of your rope, he says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. 
And yet if you find yourself in the prideful category this morning, he says your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. You're beyond the need of God's grace. The gospel has something to say to us both. It both humbles us and it gives comfort. It's, it's a healing balm to those who feel they're at the end. As this morning, um, I just want to invite you to come to Jesus, to, to, to hear his message, but to not only hear the message and think those are nice words, but to receive the messenger. So honestly, if, if you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you um, to do that, to, to, to pray and receive him this morning, to, to give your life to him. He's, 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 he's here. He's coming with a message of good news. And if you know Christ, I do pray that your heart would open wide and you would see that I am, I am the poor, I am the captive, I am the blind, I'm the pressed. I need the favor of God. I need that grace. I need my debts canceled. I'm not better than so-and-so. If I am, it's only by the grace of God. It's nothing in me. And so I pray that you would experience that oppression being lifted from him as the liberator has come. And I'll leave you with this benediction that comes from Matthew 11. Because he not only liberates us, but he invites us to take on his yoke. And he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take, me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I pray this week that we'd be a people who experience the light burden of Jesus that we follow him and we display his glory everywhere we go.